Greet all of you in Jesus' precious name this evening. Again, in the name of the great physician, the one that cares about each of us, loved us, the one that gave you life, gave me life. Without God, you wouldn't be here. No question about that. I've enjoyed this time together with you this weekend. You're a friendly group of people, and Lord bless you for that. We've certainly been well taken care of at Sam's place, as you can imagine, and uh, we've had a good time. Our families have, yeah, they're sitting together and all that kind of thing. That's normal. And uh, so we've enjoyed our time here. <clears throat> Lord bless you for, for uh, taking care, good care of us. And uh, if you think of us back in uh, Mount Eaton, Ohio, pray for us. We have a lot of responsibilities there to carry out in the Lord's work as well as you do here. I'm entitled the message this evening, A Biblical Perspective on the Right to Die. Maybe that's not exactly what you had in mind, but we're going to be talking about end-of-life issues. That's a little more general subject, but uh, this is what I've called this. Turning your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 to begin with. <clears throat> this is a serious subject, as I guess all of them have been, but um, this maybe gets a little bit more serious when you're thinking about death. <clears throat> But as already been mentioned by Sonny, as Christians, it's a little different because we have hope. Death is just a valley we pass through. <clears throat> I like the words of Paul, and he referred to another place where he said similar things. But here he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain, or it's even better. But if I live in the flesh, that is, the, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Notice how unselfish Paul was. He had this desire to go on to be with God, to be with the Lord. But, he said, I know at this point you need me more than me going to heaven. So I'm willing to stay living. <laughs> That's kind of the way it, it uh, points out to me. <clears throat> he was ready. He was ready to live, he was ready to die. And that's how we all need to be, ready to live and ready to die. And to live was to bring glory to God, but even in dying, we bring glory to God. We'll be talking about that later. The blessed thing about going to, to heaven, of dying and going to heaven, is Satan can't get at you anymore. You're finally home free, you might say. You made it all the way, and no longer do you have to have that, those temptations, those struggles and things that we're all going through right now. The world system can't get a hold of us any longer. So I can see why Paul was saying this. He had struggled a long time, and he was ready to be freed from that. This is one of his latter books that he wrote. <clears throat> so maybe we're thinking, this is a morbid subject, thinking about death, but it's an important one. And we need to think about it ahead of time. That, that is one thing that many Christians don't do enough of, is to think ahead of time 
to prepare for their death. And yes, I know there's a lot of young people here. You know, they're teenagers and they're thinking, oh, not me. But as you know, teenagers die too. And so we all need to be thinking about it because we never know when our time is. We don't like to admit it, but I understand that age 26 on the average is your height of physical uh, strength and you're, you're in the best shape, uh, you might say, in your life. After 26, you start going downhill. Can you believe it? So a lot of us are going on the other side of the hill. You know, we're past 26 away. Some of you are coming up that direction. So um, that just helps us to realize how quickly life goes. Life does not last that long, it seems. Well, let's look at some of these um, principles that, we, that have to do with the end of life. <clears throat> the first point that I want to make is that we have life only as given by God. <clears throat> I would have referred to that at the beginning. You're only here because God made you. That's the only way that you have life. And I'll refer to the, to the scriptures that I looked at last night, that we were created in his image. We weren't pointing that out last night, but uh, verse 27 of Genesis 1 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And over in verse 7 of chapter 2, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So God is the one that gives us life. He gives each one of us life. And God is protective of life. If you go on a little further in Genesis, chapter 9, verse 6, there were consequences if someone took the life of a human being. It says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. He was made in the image of God. God is very protective of human life. He's sacred in God's eyes. And so man has to forfeit his own life if he uh, takes the life of someone else, is what the, the, the law was that God had given. You know, God is the one that life is derived from, and God is the one that circumscribes our life now. He's the one that limits our life. He defines when and where the boundaries are to our life. Okay? He gives life and he takes life according to his will and according to his sovereignty. He is in control. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 uh, point out the fact that uh, we're the temple of God. If you're a Christian, it says, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Sounds pretty serious there, doesn't it? Him or any man that defiles the temple, God's going to destroy that, that person. God destroys those who defile the physical body is what it's saying. And so we do not have really a right to life. No, man must view life as a gift. It's not a right. And there's no 
Okay, we're calling this the biblical perspective on the right to die. Well, there is no right to die in the scriptures, in the Bible. Not really. Many people today want their rights. They want civil rights. They want minority rights. They want gay rights. They want um, majority rights. They want abortion rights. They want the right to life, and some now want the right to die. And there's many more rights that you could talk about. <clears throat> but you know, Christian, the Christian life is not made up of rights. No, when you become a Christian, you give up your rights. You hand those over to God. And rather, we have lots of responsibilities that God has given to us that we're to take care of. He's given us gifts. So he's given us the gift of life. And sometimes he gives people the gift of death. When God calls a saint home to be with him, like Paul was saying, that'd be a gift because it'd be even better than what I'm experiencing now. And perhaps some of you are thinking the same thing. In fact, if we think about it, we don't have a right not to die either. We don't have, well, we just don't have any rights, basically is what it amounts to. Because we're all under the sentence of death. You know, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and there's none righteous, no, not one. The the wages of, of sin is death. So it's only a gift of life through Jesus Christ and his shed blood that we do have life and that we don't need to die the second death. Romans 14, 7 and 8 points out this fact. Romans 14, 7, it says, For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. Whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. Now, that's putting it pretty clear, I think, that we're his. And whichever way he determines it's going to be, that's his gift to us at that time. It's not our right, but it's our gift. <clears throat> our life and our death both belong to God and his sovereign will. God has divine ownership in these matters of life and death. So we're not our own. Man tries to take the arena of death away from God. You know, he tries to be, act as God in these days that we live in and do things to try and prolong our lives and so forth. And some of them are right and well. But we need, we need to give the arena of death back to God because God is the one that determines, really, in the end, how long you live. All right. Now I'm going to ask a question. We want to think about, consider. And that is this. Under what circumstances, if any, can a person righteously exercise a choice in the timing and or mode of his death? Under what circumstances, if any, can you righteously exercise a choice in the timing or mode of your death? <clears throat> Think about that. Well, I'm going to give you some principles that might help us to decide that. <clears throat> We're going to look at some criteria. And it's pretty easy. 
Three basic criteria, three questions you might say that you might ask yourself. And so let's start looking at those end of life criteria. We're talking of end of life issues and this is what I use when I try and explain to people how to make decisions at the end of life is these three criteria. And of course there's a lot of applications and so forth that you can go from there, but this is the basis. I'll leave some of that down because some of you are still writing. And I know how it is to try and take notes when they go too fast. All right, the, the first criteria is to use the right standard. <clears throat> the right standard. And I think you should know what that is. The standard that, the right standard is right here. It's the Bible. You cannot base end-of-life decisions on man's reasoning, because man often makes mistakes. Um, in the Bible it says, there's a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Now, of course, that's maybe applying to a different situation somewhat, but, you know, man's ways are often fraught with error. <clears throat> so we need to base it on the right standard, which is the Bible. That's the first thing. We're going to come back to each of these and give you scenarios or give you biblical examples and then scenarios later on. The second criteria is to have the right goal. And the right goal is to bring God glory. Colossians 3.23, And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. We're to bring glory to him. So you have to think about what is the nature of this situation that I'm that I find myself in or that my parent is in or my aunt or my grandmother or my daughter or whoever person it is that might be facing death. What, what, what is the situation? What are the options? You know, what is the doctor telling me? What are my options? Or just maybe you're not even seeing a doctor. You're still just thinking about, you know, what should I do about this situation? Is my goal to bring God glory? Think about those things when you're looking at end-of-life issues. And the third thing is to have the right motive. What is causing you to do this? And the motive, the right motive, should be love for God and love for others. Love for your loved ones, love for your fellow men. Paul there gave us a great example. He said, yes, I'd rather die and go to be with Jesus, but I know that it's better for me to stay here and, and minister to you. And I trust I'll come there soon to minister to you. Why, what was, he had his motive. His motive was love for God and love, love for his fellow man. So that's why he made that decision, you see at that point. Okay? <clears throat> all right. So those three criteria need to be all yes in order that, to point out that you're making the right decision. So now let's look at a spectrum of, of uh, or let's, I'll talk about it first, and then we'll look at a spectrum of uh, death situations. And this is going from the worst to the best. A spectrum of death situations. <clears throat> the, the scripture would talk about near-death circumstances, near-death choices and motives. And in some cases, uh, it points out suicide, a death situation such as suicide, which would be, you might say, to the extreme left, if you want to look at it that way. Wrong, extremely wrong. And then it goes all the way over to the extreme right, which is self-sacrifice like Jesus. Okay? So we're gonna, let's, let's look at some of those. <clears throat> okay, and in between, I should point out, in between those two would be 
what I'll call foregoing medical care. Uh, and we'll give examples concerning that. And that's probably the, the area that we're most unsure about and that we need to look at these things when we're facing death. Okay? Well, suicide, definitely wrong. I think everybody agrees. I'll give you an example. I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, Saul, I'm going to read from 1 Chronicles, uh, by the wrong, it's, it's wrong in the notes. It's 1 Chronicles 10, not 2 Chronicles. I realize that. So take out the one. It's just 1 Chronicles chapter 10. I'm going to read several verses from there. If you remember Saul, King Saul, he was in a battle with the uh, Philistines, and he was close to uh, Mount Gilboa, which is close to the Sea of Galilee, to picture it in your mind. <clears throat> and the Philistines, or the Philistines followed hard after Saul and after his sons, and the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. So they'd already killed three of his sons. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was wounded of the archers. Then said Saul to his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. So Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise on the sword and died. And skipping down to verse 13, it talks about it in between what they did. But verse 13, it says, So Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord. Okay, so there, okay, I don't have it listed up here, but there you see that he failed the first criteria. The first criteria is to use the standard of the word of God, the Bible. And it says he went against the word of the Lord, all right, which he kept not, and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it. That's a subject we talked about this morning, familiar spirit. That's using occultism to get your answers, which is God hates that. And inquired not of the Lord, therefore he slew him and turned the kingdom unto David, the son of Jesse. <clears throat> so he failed the first criteria of following the right standard. What about uh, the goal? Was his goal to, uh, to bring glory to God by killing himself? <laughs> Obviously not. It's easy to see, isn't it? No, he had the wrong goal. And what was his motive? His motive was selfish, wasn't it? He didn't want to be abused by the Philistines. And so he wanted to quickly put his life to an end so that they couldn't abuse him. You know, the unfortunate thing is, he was abused anyway, wasn't he? They took his head and they hung it up at various places in, in, the, in the kingdom of the Philistines, which is pretty gross, but <clears throat> that's how it was. So he no longer really loved his nation. He didn't love his people. He didn't love his God. He failed all the criteria. All right, that's an Old Testament example. Let's go to a New Testament one, Judas Iscariot. And I won't, uh, I won't go and read the verses. You know the, the account. He's the one that, that uh, um, betrayed Jesus. <clears throat> and afterward, he realized what he'd done, and he was very upset with himself. He was very sorry. Uh, he... He, um, he decided that, well, let's see, he threw the, the pieces of silver back, tried to give it back to the, to the church leaders, and they wouldn't really take it. But he went out and he hung himself, as you know. That's in Matthew 27, 3 through 5. You can read about that. So in his decision to end his life, how did he do with the criteria? Well, he certainly didn't follow the word of God. 
He was going against it. He certainly wasn't trying to bring glory to God, and he certainly didn't have a motive of love for his fellow men, no. He, he was, again, thinking about himself. He couldn't forgive himself, and so it was selfish. And that's one of the things that I'm trying to point out to you is that we dare not have selfish motives when we're ending life, end-of-life decisions. We need to be careful about that. <clears throat> okay, now let's look a little bit at in-between, and that is foregoing medical care, which is, I believe, permitted. And if you follow the criteria and pass the criteria, I think it's blessed by God. Back in the times of the patriarchs of the Old Testament and in the New Testament, they didn't have medical care like we do now. They didn't have breathing machines. They didn't have all the antibiotics. They didn't have all the uh, other kinds of drugs to keep our hearts going and our, our brains from being... Um, stroked out and so forth like that. Uh, but people still lived a long time, you know that, especially at the beginning. <laughs> None of us have attained 960 years yet. So uh, they, they did some things right, didn't they? But I'm thinking of Jacob. Jacob, and he lived to a ripe age, 100 and something. And uh, Genesis 49:33. I always like this scripture. The, the chapter, the, the chapter 49 of, of Genesis, uh, it's, it's uh, Jacob talking to his sons and grandsons. And then in, in the last verse of that chapter, it says, And when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. Now, it doesn't say when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he called for the doctors you know, all the wise people of the land to try and save his life and try to keep him going for another six weeks because he was dying of whatever. No, no, he, he decided that I'm just going to let death come. <clears throat> he, forgo- he, he, he was forgoing medical care is the way I would look at it. <clears throat> um, he knew that his end was near. I think God sometime, somehow warned him and so he had this special time with his sons and grandsons. He gave uh, prophecies concerning them. And so I think he, let's check the criteria. <clears throat> I, I can only see that he was committed to following God's word. You know, in, in his life, he was, he was following what God had, had told him to do. And I think he did this all for the glory of God. He prophesied to his children and gave up his life to the glory of God. And I think he loved God, and he loved his, his, his fellow men. He loved his people. So he had the proper motives. And so I look at it as a righteous giving up of life is what I would look, look at that as. And I think uh, this is the kind of end-of-life decision-making that brings glory to God and that God would have us to do. Another example, New Testament again, is Simeon. <clears throat> and I won't go there, but you know the story again. Simeon was the... Uh, older man that, that uh, was in the temple a lot. And when Joseph and Mary brought Jesus in to, to do the, the Jewish rites with him in the temple, they met Simeon. And Simeon saw this, this young Christ child and said, now the Messiah has come and I can die in peace. <laughs> and, you know, it doesn't say exactly, but I assume that he soon passed away after that. Uh, that's just the way it would give you that... Uh, that feeling or that uh, perception in, in the connotation there. 
in the setting that it's written, written in. It talks about the fact that he was devout and just. I think he was following the right standard. Uh, he, in verse 28, he blesses God. I think he was trying to bring glory to God and uh, talks about uh, being a salvation and light for all the people. Later on in that scripture, I think he lived a full life. He'd fulfilled God's calling for his life. And so he, again, righteously gave up his life. He didn't want to, he didn't plead with God to let me live another 20 years, you know, that kind of thing. All right, now let's go to self-sacrifice, which is commended in the scriptures. And we'll look at two examples concerning that. One is Stephen, the first martyr in Acts 7. Fifty-five through sixty. And this is what it says. Well, I'll read fifty-four because it helps to give the setting. Because uh, he was giving, he was preaching to the people. Fifty-four. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. You see... His end-of-life decision-making, I know it was mostly decided for him there, but he could have stayed quiet. He could have softened the message. He could have watered it down so that they wouldn't get so upset at him, you know? But no, he was acting on God's word. He was bringing glory to God, and he loved them. He loved the people. And so he passed all the criteria for giving up his life, see? And of course, as I mentioned before, Jesus Christ obviously meets all the criteria. He is the supreme example of self-sacrifice. He was following God's word. He said, not my will, but thine be done. He, of course, died so that we could be saved. And obviously, he loved us, or he wouldn't have done it. He so loved the world that he did this. And there's a lot of things you could talk about there. But I think you're well aware of that. So those who give their lives in self-sacrifice look beyond their sacrifice and look beyond their sufferings to see what it's doing on behalf of other people. And that's what Stephen did, that's what Christ did, and so forth. Uh, Let's remember that our primary motive must not be to eliminate our suffering our primary motive for foregoing medical care is to give our lives in self so that we can bring glory to God and out of love for others. That is what our motive should be and our goal should be. All right, now we're going to look at some more current type things that we face. And one is assisted suicide. Just briefly here, I think you've heard of assisted suicide. That is when 
someone doesn't want to live anymore for some reason or another. They might be sick or they might be afraid that they're going to be sick, in some cases even. Or perhaps they, are, um, they feel they're worthless. What do they have to offer the world anymore? And so a physician or a practitioner, a uh, medical practitioner of some sort, <clears throat> may uh, help them die. Okay? And that's usually by giving a, a potion of some kind that's poison or that, that's, that's deadly. Uh, you probably all heard of the Dr. Kevorkian. He's, it's been quite some time now since he started his Dr. Death activities, is what I would call it. Uh, I understand that the first lady whom Dr. Kevorkian assisted in her suicide had Alzheimer's disease, the early stages of it, and she wanted to die because she didn't want to go through all the suffering and the, the, the trouble that she knew it would be to go through Alzheimer's, which it's true. It is a drawn-out dying affairs is generally how it is. <clears throat> but um, that does not, does that bring glory to God? Is that, well, it's selfish. It's selfish is what it is. So it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it fails all, all the criteria <clears throat> when you have someone assist in your suicide. And of course, assisting in suicide, to me, both parties are guilty. Not the person that had themselves eliminated, but the person that does it because they're just like the accomplice in a robbery at a bank. You know, they're both guilty. And so that's, it's murder. And I think it's, it's clear to know, it's clear what, what happens to murderers, uh, according to the Bible. All right, then let's go on to active euthanasia, which could be in, this, in the same scenario. <clears throat> what do we mean by active euthanasia? Well, literally, euthanasia means good death or painless death. It's not really good, however, because if you're doing it on purpose, you're actually murdering, so it's not good in that, in that sense. <clears throat> but I'm talking about active euthanasia in contrast to foregoing medical health care. Okay? There's a difference. There's a, there's a big difference. Active euthanasia is causing a, purpose, causing a person to die on purpose. You know, you're, you're giving them something to cause them to die. Might be a lethal injection of potassium iodide or some other poison. Some other, it might be an overdose of, uh, of like, uh, sleeping pills. It's, it's also called mercy killing. But again, it fails all the criteria. <clears throat> fails all the criteria that we've been talking about. It's something that's been practiced in Holland for quite a few years. And I understand recently it did become, it finally became law over there. So it's now accepted as law. But the United States was the first one to pass a law that legalized um, active euthanasia. And that was out in Oregon uh, some years back. Let's see. I think it took effect in 1997. So about 15 years now. So it made the U.S. the first in the world to have a law of this sort where a doctor could legally euthanize a patient. They could legally prescribe them a whole handful of sleeping pills to put themselves away. <clears throat> well, this kind of thing is being pushed. Uh, Washington has also accepted it, and I believe one of the northeastern states is, 
I shouldn't even say, it. I think it's in the works, but I'm not sure that it's happened. But anyway, <clears throat> it's being pushed by the National Hemlock Society. If any of you know what hemlock is, that's a poison that causes your death. Uh, I wouldn't be joining the National Hemlock Society if I was you. But this is something that, again, we as Christians need to guard against. <clears throat> we need to realize that it's, it's like abortions, it's, it's murder. You know, when Roe versus Wade was legalized back in 1973, I don't think there were many people that imagined the millions of babies that would be aborted as a result of that decision. It's, it's a wholesale slaughter of unborn infants in my way of looking at it. <clears throat> and a lot of these are slaughtered because they're unwanted. And so as you get older and you're not productive in society anymore, and you're kind of a burden on society. I mean, you make the medic, you, you older people, you're making the Medicare bills get higher and, and uh, you know, we're in trouble economically. So if we could kind of eliminate you people that are over a certain age and not producing in society anymore, just think how much better it would be for the rest of us. And so let's euthanize these older people. See, that's what's happening over in Holland. And there's a number of people over there being euthanized that they're not giving their consent. It just kind of happens, you know. You have to read between the lines there. <clears throat> so it's, it's like a slippery slope that I see that we're going on, you know. What's going to happen in this country that we're living in? Okay, now, let's talk about the kind of things that, that we deal with and that perhaps a number of you have dealt with. And that's concerning the area of forgoing medical care. What are some things that we need to be looking at here? <clears throat> you know, we live in a very sophisticated technological age in which when your heart starts to fail, there's multiple drugs we can give you to, to help your heart beat better, get stronger. We can do all kinds of tests to tell exactly how your valves are functioning and whether your heart is being remodeled, meaning that it's shaped in a different shape than it would be good health, they can tell whether you have, I won't get into all of that, but um, they can tell all kinds of things and then they know what to do to help those various situations so that you live longer. And so life expectancy keeps going up in the United States. I read somewhere that babies that are being born now, um, a good portion of those, they would expect to live to be 100 because the life expectancy is going up that fast. It, uh, for those of us that are getting old, like me, my life expectancy is only like in the, in the 80s someplace. You know, it's not 100 yet. But uh, for some of you, some of you live to be in your 90s, and maybe it's a number of you in your 100s. I don't know. So there's more things they can do to prolong life, to, to help your body be better, uh, healthier, so that you live longer. We keep trying to keep the blood pressure down so you don't die of a stroke or a heart attack. We try and watch your cholesterol. We try and keep the sugar under control and eat more vegetables, exercise more. That's a whole other topic, of course. But uh, then they can hook you up to a machine. If, you're, if your heart stops, they can do CPR and try and get it started again and uh, put you on a machine to keep your, keep your, your breathing going. And in, if your heart wants to fail altogether, they can even put an assistive device into your big, into the aorta, the big artery that comes out of your heart, 
and help pump, or they can even put you on a heart-lung machine for a while and, and do all of it for you, uh, have your lungs breathe and, and, and pump for your heart. That's what they do when they do a heart transplant. So there's all kinds of things they can do nowadays. Actually, I have two young patients in my practice that have had heart transplants. If they wouldn't have had those heart transplants, I would imagine they would have had a funeral. And one lady had, had her one child, and she developed uh, acute heart failure after that, but nothing seemed to help. She has a heart transplant. Another young man that are in our community. Um, so there's all kinds of things we can do nowadays. Um, so we now need to do more planning. That's what this talk is about, you might say, for what do you do when you're facing these situations? You know, should I have a transplant or shouldn't I? Should I just allow myself to die or should we allow mom to die? Should we allow dad to die? Or should we do this? Should we do that? You know, what are we going to do? Well, you need some directives, and this happens to be on my list first, even though I don't promote the living will that much anymore, because I realize that the durable power of attorney for healthcare is better, but I'm just going to talk about it. A living will is advanced directives given while still in your right mind. Okay, you all know what a will is concerning your property, you know, your, your money, your bank accounts, and so forth like that. I hope all of you that are married have a will. You should have a will. If you don't, get one quick because you should have that. It helps, maybe it won't help you so much, but it helps your family and those that are left behind so they can work through that better. I've seen enough somewhat family disasters when that isn't done. <clears throat> so this is a document that will direct the medical care that you would receive if you were to become terminally ill and unable to make your wishes known or you become permanently unconscious. You've heard of cases where somebody is like in a coma for months, okay? That's the kind of situation where this would, could help to uh, help the doctors know what to do. Because most of the time, doctors are bound to doing everything within their power to do to try and keep this person alive, uh, you know, almost no matter what, what the cost is, etc. Now, notice that the living will only takes effect if you're mentally incompetent, that means you can't think you can't make decisions anymore and you're in a terminal you have a terminal illness or you're permanently unconscious now a terminal illness means it's an illness from which you're going to die okay it might be a while till you die you have somebody gets cancer and you catch it early enough and it's not spread anywhere you can perhaps cure be cured of that many people are but if you find it too late and cancer is already metastasized meaning it's spread throughout your body Generally speaking, that is going to be a terminal illness. Now, they still do things to try and slow it down, but um, there are many situations where a physician can predict fairly accurately, give you a range of how much longer you're going to live, and some of you might have been told that already. All right, so that's, that's the one thing that's given that you can use. The other is the durable power of attorney for health care, which is another document. It looks sort of similar to the living will, except... You name someone, I have one for myself, my wife is my durable power of attorney for health care. Um, another person can make health care decisions for you when you're not in your right mind. So if I would have a stroke and no longer be able to think or, you know, make my wishes known, then 
my wife could make decisions concerning my care because of this document that we have, and vice versa. I'm her durable power of attorney for health care. And I think whenever you get married, you should, or maybe if, you, if you're a single person getting older, you still, you, you should get something like this in place. It'd be my advice. It's not that expensive. Uh, an attorney can easily uh, get it set up for you. Now, um, why do I say the durable power of attorney for healthcare is better? Well, there's two things that make it better than the living will. Um, it has wider powers and it's a lot more flexible than the living will. The, the living will is, is, you know, you make, you write these things down while you're still in your right mind. By the way, you, you need to do the living will, durable power of attorney for healthcare when you're still be able to think. If you're already had the stroke, you're already, you know, down that path too far, you can't do it anymore because it has to be done while you're able to think and make decisions. So it has wider powers because the, the durable power for attorney for healthcare because um, it covers all medical situations that might, might come up during your, your uh, time when you're real sick. <clears throat> Whereas the living will applies only to medical decisions that are made when death is near, when it's near the end. Should we put him on the breathing machine or shouldn't we? And if you don't put him on the breathing machine, he's going to die. You know, that kind of thing. And so consequently, a living will doesn't protect individuals who are incapacitated by, say, a stroke or Alzheimer's disease that's far enough along that they can't make decisions anymore. Uh, and they may linger for months. They may linger for years. And it really doesn't help. The, the living will doesn't help. Whereas the durable power, for attorney, par, durable power of attorney for health care, should be a shorter name for that, durable power of attorney. Um, that can, you can use that during that time. That person can make decisions all during that time. And then it's flexible because, you know, one day they talk to the doctor and, oh, I shouldn't say any, you might have the name, so I shouldn't uh, say any names, but Mrs. So-and-so, uh, she's in bad shape. You know, we don't know if she's going to live 24 hours or not. You know, what should we do? Should we do this? Should we do that? Well, you might say, <clears throat> can we wait till tomorrow? I'd like to talk to my family and my minister and see what they think. And then tomorrow they, they come and the doctor says, well, she's a lot better today. You know, uh, there's a good chance she'll get out of this thing. She might snap out of it. And then you're saying, well, okay, let's do what we can then. You know, it, it's flexible. You know, it can change from day to day. If you had the living will, the first day you might have said, nope, nothing. You know, and you have a funeral. You see, you don't know always what's, what's next. And you can't always see the, see the future. All right. So those, those are the differences between these two. Uh, these can both be, you know, once you, you might say, well, I don't want to write this because I don't know for sure how I want it done. Well, you can write it once, and if two years later you decide you want it a little bit different, you can change it while you're still in your right mind. It's just when you go in your, when you're not in your right mind anymore, that's when you can't change it. So it can be changed. You can, you can alter them. It doesn't mean it's, you know, forever that particular way.
Okay, another, another thing I need to mention here is that you must see the, there, there must be a differentiation between <clears throat> terminal illness and imminent uh, death. Uh, a terminal illness I already mentioned is something that you know is going to cause death sometime, but it could be years down the road. It could be next week too, but it could, it can vary a lot. Whereas imminent, as you probably know, means it can be any time. I mean, at the time is probably short. So there's, there's a difference there. Um, because if they would say, well, this is a terminal illness, so what should we do? Well, it depends on how imminent it is. It, it might, you might abandon medical care too early if it's not imminent. You know, if, if it's predicted this person may live for three years, well, you still need to take care of them. You know, we, just because somebody's going to die someday doesn't mean they say, okay, uh, forget it. You know, we won't do anything for you anymore. Just suffer along until you finally die. No, that's not, nobody would be happy with that, would they? So you need to have those things understood. And I think I failed to mention that when you set up the durable power of attorney for health care, whoever that is, you should sit down and have a frank discussion with that person about what you want to happen should you get in that situation. You know, do you want a feeding tube put in? Do you want water given to you? Do you want them to put you on a breathing machine or not? You need, you need to talk about all those things ahead of time because, you know, once you're in the situation, it's too late. You know, they don't know what you want. So you need to make your desires known to that person. If, if it's a living will, like I said, that's pretty inflexible because you just put down exactly how it is and you can't really change it once you're into that position. But if you tell your, this person that's representing you what you want, then that person can respond in a way that's appropriate for the situation. So if you get what I'm saying, I think the durable power of attorney for healthcare is better. And I would, actually I have that, my wife has that. We don't have a living will because to me it's kind of useless, uh, just by itself. Some people have both for whatever. Okay, now. The next thing I want to point out is that I think we should respect the person's wishes. Okay, I just talked to you about that, <clears throat> that this, this person has made their wishes known ahead of time so you know what, what they're thinking. And if they're getting close to death, and they know that they're a Jacob, they're a Simeon, you might say, then we need to honor them in that. I don't think you should, it's the classic example. I haven't had it happen that much to me, but in earlier years I did when I took care of more of non-Amish people. You'd have a family and mother is dying, she's in the hospital, in the local hospital, and the, and the daughter that's close by is, she understands how it is, and she says, no, let's not prolong her. Let's just let her die. Let's let her be peaceful and, and so forth. But the daughter from California shows up all of a sudden, and they want everything done. I mean, they haven't seen her in three years, but they, they want all this stuff done. So you have this big conflict, you know, about what should be done. Well, so you can save that if you have these things in place. You know, if the wishes have been made known and you have something in place, you can save that hassle is what you can do. So we need to respect a person's wishes, um, especially a Christian. I've said already, you know, why do people dig their heels in and refuse to go to heaven? <laughs> you know, they don't want to die because 
Well, they're afraid of death. I understand that. Uh, and God puts into us that desire to live. But there is a point of time when, you know, God's going to take us home. So why, like, let's be like Paul. Be ready to go. That's, that's what we need to do. So if someone says, just let me go, uh, that's fine. And I do have, let's see, I think I had five people that were getting hospice care at one time this winter. I think that's the most I've ever had at one time. I, I think hospice does well for the most part. I like our, our uh, local hospice because, well, I know the doctor that's ahead of it real well, and he's a Christian man. I've known him for 20 years or so. Uh, so I think they do well. And they respect, you know, most of these be Amish people. They respect the Amish people for what they think and what they believe. Uh, but they do so well in helping them through that time so that you're not abandoning them. You know, I just can't go make house calls all the time for these people day after day. I make some, but not, not all the time. Um, so that brings me to the next point, and that is let's not hold physical life above spiritual life. Because, see, I feel that's what's happening sometimes. Oh, I don't want to die. You know, we're all concerned about our body. What about your spirit? You know, think about that. Uh, there's a Dr. Terrell that said this. If we use our own resources or those of others to prolong physical life in any and every situation, no matter what, we have made physical life our highest value. And we're willing to spend a million dollars, or let's say 300000 to have this operation done or this procedure done or whatever. Uh, okay, if we do that, he goes on to say, as such, it is an idol, for only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ makes possible our final freedom from physical and spiritual death. So we can almost make our physical well-being our idol, because that's what's most important to us, and it shouldn't be. That should not be most important. It's important, I agree. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying everybody should just say, okay, yeah, I'm going to die. No, but we need to keep it in perspective, keep it in the right level. It's not number one. Because physical life is indeed sacred in the eyes of God, but spiritual life is much more precious than that. That's why I think the Bible says, Psalm 116, 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's precious when someone comes home to be with God. So death is God's prerogative. Uh, we do not have a right to die. When our time comes, God will call us home but that's up to him. It's not us. And that's why I feel that uh, withholding heroics and that kind of thing towards the end of our life can be okay. And you're just saying, God, just take me when you want to take me. You know, that's up to you. And let him do that. Uh, another, I should bring it out right now. I have another uh, chart here, or graph, I should say, that helps to illustrate how to help us make decisions about end-of-life uh, situations. And this, this chart, is, it's, just, it's just me making it, so it's not an official chart, okay? I'm just illustrating a point. Lives saved per medical dollars spent, or invasiveness even, you can say. And so on the vertical is lives saved. And they follow this... this uh, arc like that. And going this way is dollar spent or invasiveness. Invasiveness meaning how much surgery, you know, how much you go inside your body to do things and so forth. Okay, you can see that at the beginning, you know, maybe you spend 
$5,000 to save 50, 50%, okay? It's, it, it has a good return, you might say, the, 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 the hospitalization perhaps to treat this situation. But as you go up in dollars and in invasiveness, you notice how it levels off. And so there gets a point somewhere along in here, and I don't put a dollar amount on that because it varies from situation to situation, but there gets to be a point where you can spend much, much more money and you get very, very little return for it. You know, that last 300,000 may only give you another half percent chance that you're gonna live for another six weeks, especially like in cancer treatments and things. To me, some people just go way overboard in that because they spend and they spend and they spend and they go through all this horrific side effects that they might have from it. And what do they get for it? A few more weeks of miserable living <laughs> is often the case. I've advised people to, you know, not go through it, you know, and they've, they've honored, honored me in that a number of times. And like these cases where I'm talking about that are in hospice care, you know, they're at this situation. They're saying, I don't want to do anything more. I don't want to go to the hospital. I don't want to spend any more money. You know, just let death come when it's going to come. There's, there's one, one of the ladies that's on hospice care. She's a young lady. She's 28, I think, 29. But she has severe multiple sclerosis. And she's now blind. She can hear. But her desire is, it's, I get reports every two weeks from hospice. And her desire has been for months now. Uh, I want to stay at home be comfortable, and go to heaven. <laughs> That's her goals. She wants to go to heaven. She's ready to go. But she just lives on and on, you know, it's, it seems like. <clears throat> okay, so that helps to illustrate, maybe helps you to think about that, that expensive operation, that expensive treatment. Should, is it worth it? You know, evaluate that. Because remember, one of the criteria is your love for others. And do you want to spend... You know, maybe you have the money, but, uh, you know, is it a selfish thing <laughs> or is it, you know, you care about the other people around you, you care about your community, your church, whatever. There, there comes a time when you need to make that kind of a decision. Each, each situation is different, I know, so I can't give you a certain dollar amount because that's, that can be variable. Okay. The next thing I wanted to say is to be careful how you word your documents because you don't want to be guilty of suicide. You don't want to put something in there that would actually cause your death. So you have to be a little careful how you do that. Uh, let's see, in Ohio, the, uh, the uh, living will says something like this. In the event I am in a terminal condition, I do hereby declare and direct that my attending physician shall, number one, administer no life-sustaining treatment, number two, with, number two, withdraw such treatment if such treatment has commenced, and number three, permit me to die naturally and provide me with only that care necessary to make me comfortable and to re relieve my pain but not to postpone my death. Okay, um, one thing I want to point out there, some people are so worried that if they put someone on a breathing machine, for example, then you can't take them off. Well, that's wrong. You can always take them off again. Uh, just because you put them on doesn't mean you can't take it off. You can, you can change, you know, the, the durable power of attorney for healthcare could change their mind. You know, thinking, well, 
my father does not want to be on this for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, he wants it stopped after a certain time. Maybe he said, you know, you can have me on a machine for a week, but then take it off. <laughs> I don't know. You, can, you have to talk about that ahead of time again. But, um, yeah, if you put something on, you can always take it off. And, in fact, that happens many times, that they take them off and just wait and see what happens. And sometimes they breathe on and they live on for quite a while, and sometimes they die within minutes. You know, you never know uh, for sure what, what is going to happen. All right. To conclude, <clears throat> I think we need to really, really pray about it. I should have emphasized this at the beginning. But prayer, of course, is, is, is where you start. I guess I was thinking you'd be doing that as, you, as you're checking the standard, which is the Bible. You need to pray about it. You need to evaluate end-of-life criteria. And um, I think God's going to hold us accountable for our decisions like this, uh, our actions here on earth. We need to, to realize that, that God is holding us accountable. And I think we should be like Paul. As I read before, he said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is certainly the blessing that a Christian can have. And so may God give you grace to respect human life as God does and to make life and death decisions accordingly, uh, looking at it from God's perspective. And I think God will bless you in your, in your decisions. So again, may God bless you as a church here, and I trust these sessions have been instructive and help us to make decisions in life and it will be a blessing to all of you. Turn the time back over to uh, Rich.